We're continuing our studies in 2 Chronicles chapter 14. And Abijah rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. Asa his son succeeded him as king. And in his days the country was at peace for ten years. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He removed the foreign altars and the high places, smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and to obey his laws and commands. He removed the high places and incense altars in every town in Judah, and the kingdom was at peace under him. He built up the fortified cities of Judah since the land was at peace. No one was at war with him during those years, for the Lord gave him rest. Let us build up these towns, he said to Judah, and put walls round them with towers, gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We sought him and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. Asa had an army of 300,000 men from Judah, equipped with large shields and with spears, and 280,000 from Benjamin, armed with small shields and with bows. All these were brave fighting men. Zerah the Cushite marched out against them with an army of thousands upon thousands and 300 chariots, and came as far as Marashah. Asa went out to meet him, and they took up battle positions in the valley of Zephathar near Marashah. <clears throat> then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this vast army. Lord, you are our God. Do not let mere mortals prevail against you. (coughs) The Lord struck down the Cushites before Asa and Judah. The Cushites fled, and Asa and his army pursued them as far as Gerar. Such a great number of Cushites fell that they could not recover. They were crushed before the Lord and his forces. The men of Judah carried off a large amount of plunder. They destroyed all the villages around Gerar. For the terror of the Lord had fallen on them. They looted all these villages, since there was much plunder there. They also attacked the camps of the herdsmen and carried off droves of sheep and goats and camels. Then they returned to Jerusalem. 2 Chronicles, chapters 15 and 16. The Spirit of God came on Azariah, son of Oded. He went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was without the true God, without a priest to teach and without the law. But in their distress, 
they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, and he was found by them. In those days it was not safe to travel about, for all the inhabitants of the lands were in great turmoil. One nation was being crushed by another, and one city by another, because God was troubling them with every kind of distress. But as for you, be strong, and do not give up, for your work will be rewarded. When Asa heard these words, and the prophecy of Azariah son of Oded the prophet, he took courage. He removed the detestable idols from the whole land of Judah and Benjamin, and from the towns he had captured in the hills of Ephraim. He repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the portico of the Lord's temple. Then he assembled all Judah and Benjamin and the people from Ephraim, Manasseh and Simeon who had settled among them. For large numbers had come over to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. They assembled at Jerusalem in the third month of the fifteenth year of Asa's reign. At that time, they sacrificed to the Lord 700 head of cattle and 7,000 sheep and goats from the plunder they had brought back. They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, with all their heart and soul. All who would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, were to be put to death with a small or great man or woman. They took an oath to the Lord with loud acclamation, with shouting and with trumpets and horns. All Judah rejoiced about the oath because they had sworn it wholeheartedly. They sought God eagerly and he was found by them. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. King Asa also deposed his grandmother, Maacha, from her position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive image for the worship of Asherah. Asa cut it down, broke it up, and burned it in the Kidron Valley. Although he did not remove the high places from Israel, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. He brought into the temple of God the silver and gold and the articles that he and his father had dedicated. There was no more war until the 35th year of Asa's reign. Now chapter 16. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. Asa then took the silver and gold out of the treasuries of the Lord's temple and of his own palace and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. Let there be a treaty between me and you, he said, as there was between my father and your father. See, I am sending you silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. Ben-Hadad agreed with king Asa, and sent the commanders of his forces against the towns of Israel. They conquered Ejon, Dan, 
Abel Main, and all the store cities of Naphtali. When Baasha heard this, he stopped building Ramah and abandoned his work. Then King Asa brought all the men of Judah, and they carried away from Ramah the stones and timber Baasha had been using. With them he built up Geba and Mizpah. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa king of Judah and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. Were not the Cushites and Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hands. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You have done a foolish thing, and from now on you will be at war. Asa was angry with the seer because of this. He was so enraged that he put him in prison. And at the same time, Asa brutally oppressed some of the people. The events of Asa's reign, from beginning to end, are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the doctors. Then, in the 41st year of his reign, Asa died and rested with his ancestors. They buried him in the tomb that he had cut out for himself in the city of David. They laid him on a bier covered with spices and various blended perfumes, and they made a huge fire in his honour. Let's um, pray. You need to flip back probably to chapter 14. Page 447, just so we're ready for the start of the story again. But let's pray. And we pray for the work of your Spirit, Heavenly Father, to refresh us physically, mentally, um, emotionally, spiritually, so that we can uh, seek you as they were encouraged you in Judah all those years ago. We pray for the vitality to do that and we claim your promise that as we do so your eye would be upon us to strengthen us and so please fortify us for the next 20 minutes or so and then for the week ahead and beyond we pray in Jesus name amen I'm not sure I got the title right I can see where I got it from Asa the committed but uh not to judge whether we got that title right. It says in chapter 15 at the end, he was fully committed to the Lord all his life. Well, you'll uh, want to nuance that or change it maybe by the end, but I'm not sure. I like the, the story of the woman who went to the doctor with terrible pain from swollen ankles. And he gave her some pills with the instruction to take them on alternate days for two weeks. And she said, yes, but can I just check... Um, what you mean by alternate days? Oh, he said, 
you take the pills on Monday and skip on Tuesday, take the pills on Wednesday, skip on Thursday, take the pills on Friday, and so on. Well, she came back in two weeks with no pain, and the doctor confirmed on examination that the swelling was completely gone. Perfect, he said, no more pills needed. Great, said the lady, no more pills. And can I also stop the skipping? It's been nearly killing me to do that. Which is a reminder that whenever we're given instructions, it is actually very easy to misunderstand those instructions. And that doesn't just happen in medical matters. It happens with potentially more serious consequences when we come to the Bible, particularly, let it be said, when we come to the Old Testament. What exactly is God asking us to do in the accounts of these kings' lives in 2 Chronicles? I mean, given that there are no clear commands in these three chapters, there are no instructions that are addressed to us, how are we supposed to take their lessons on board for our lives? It's a good question, isn't it? Are we just to copy the characters when they seem to be doing the right thing and then make sure we act differently from them when they get things wrong? Um, If so, who will help us make that distinction? Which isn't always easy to do, is it? In medical language, what is the prescription which God is giving us? Chronicles repeats, actually, if you think about it, lots of the same material which has been recorded in 1 and 2 Kings. And you wonder what big lessons God has wanted to get across so clearly that he repeats himself at great length in two big chunks of the Old Testament. Well, last week we looked at Rehoboam, king of Judah, the first king after King Solomon. This week we're going to skip a generation and leave out King Abijah, Rehoboam's son. His reign was comparatively brief. And so I want to suggest we move straight on to Asa, Rehoboam's grandson. And we'll slice up the three chapters which make up the Bible's account into three distinct chapters in Asa's life. Chapter 14, we'll call Decision. Chapter 15, Devotion. And chapter 16, Decline. Well, in chapter 14, we get a summary verse, and it tells us that Asa started so well with a decision. Verse 2, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. And you get a little hint of the decision which underlies all the other good things which are going to be mentioned. Um, I wonder if you spotted it. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He gave God his allegiance. God wasn't just the sort of guy up there in the sky. I was speaking to somebody on the plane uh, on uh, Wednesday going out to, to Belfast, and, and that was the sort of way he tended to speak about God, the guy up in the sky. Well, God wasn't just the guy up in the sky to Asa. He was his maker and his master. And therefore, it says here, he sought to do what was right in God's eyes. He committed himself to the category of right and wrong and to God being the originator of those standards. The preacher Simon Manchester uh, came across an old card with a cartoon of a boy standing in front of a classroom, uh, the board in the classroom, writing an answer on the board to a problem. Seven times five equals, and he put 75. And there was a speech bubble from the boy, or a thought bubble. I may be wrong, but it's how I feel. 
Simon Manchester commented that the caption would have read differently 50 years ago. The boy would just have said, I got this wrong, because those categories were clear to people then. 30 years later, the cartoon had come out, and he said there, as I mentioned, I may be wrong, but it's how I feel. Today, you could say that we've actually moved on still further, and he would probably say something different again. It's how I feel, and so it's right. So we moved a long way in that sort of cartoon, anecdotal way to think of uh, wrong and right the way we do today. Asa saw things in black and white, uh, wrong and right in the sight of God, because he had this covenant relationship with the Lord, his Lord. He could have said, I do what I do because of God's word. I want to please my Lord. And you'll see how that had all sorts of results in his reign, positively and negatively. Negatively, he got rid of some things. Positively, he encouraged others. So negatively, verse 3, he removed the foreign altars and the high places. He smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles, uh, pagan ritual poles that uh, they had picked up from uh, the Canaanites. Positively, verse 4, he commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and to obey his laws and commands. And I think it's striking how, as you go through, that emphasis on right and wrong plays out in the positive and the negative. You get both alongside each other. In the Bible, you always have those two together in authentic relationships with God. Not positive without the negative, so that would be, I suppose, encouraging everything but never shutting off wrong roads. That we might be tempted to do today. It only leads to confusion. Whereas negative only will be unhelpful in other ways. It slips easily into a different kind of bondage. No, Asa let God's word guide him. That's what he had decided. Not that we will always carry out Asa's decisions in exactly the same way that he did today. And I'm trying to work out how to, to, to put the difference in his situation and why that means that we don't actually just copy him verbatim and do exactly what he did, in, particularly in the destruction mode that he sometimes uh, took on. He was both a spiritual leader and a national leader at the same time, just by virtue of his place in the whole sweep of salvation history. And that's not the same today. We are not a theocratic nation-state in the way Israel was. Israel was, I suppose, the equivalent of the church today. But no country is like that today. And therefore, a government can't enact Christian policies as if everyone were in covenant with the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that means all sorts of things. It means we don't bulldoze mosques or try to eliminate all other religions or kill off dissenters, as happens in the next chapter. Actually, I'd argue that Christians ought to be at the forefront of welcoming a multicultural society and treating all people, whatever their creed or lifestyle, equally as made in the image of God. Even if, at the same time, we respectfully disagree with their beliefs and their behaviour. I think it's difficult to be clear, isn't it? But I... Uh, we need to be aware of the change in our culture that's happened since 9-11, um, and particularly in our context since the London bombings of July 07. 
there's been a tendency in our culture to say that we've got to all accept everyone's position as if they were all true, live and let live. And I think we want to take a, a different line from that. We welcome people of all faiths in our society, yes, whilst at the same time still disagreeing inwardly with them. That would mean actually we don't see it as wrong to say we welcome people, but we also want to win Muslims or the atheist or the Buddhist to the truth in exactly the same way that actually they often want to win us to what they claim to be true. But we don't patronizingly imagine that we all believe the same things really, and they would most likely never claim that anyway. Now, all of that I'm trying to bring forward to our culture, all of that was implied in the decision Asa had made, a decision to do right and avoid wrong in the sight of the Lord his God. And then one day it got put to the test because he had an army of 580,000 himself, but he was invaded by Zera or Zera the Kushite from Ethiopia, maybe from Libya, North East Africa, with a bigger force. And what did he do? He prayed. Because that was how his decision to take the Lord as his God showed. He relied on him. So listen again to that wonderful prayer in verses 11 and onwards. Verse 11, Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this vast army. Lord, you are our God. Do not let mere mortals prevail against you. And it's such a wonderful prayer. We've got to linger on some of the ingredients of that prayer, surely. It had definite facts. There is no one like God for power. Um, he'd actually allowed Judah to seem powerless so that they would learn that. And Asa knew it. So it had definite facts. It had a definite request. Help us, Lord. And you might know the old authorized version translation of the next bit better than you think you do. It goes on in the AV, we rest on thee and in thy name we go, which will be familiar to some of us as a lovely old hymn. The hymn writer got it from 2 Chronicles 14. So it had definite facts, it had a definite request, and the prayer had a definite focus as well for the name of God and for his honor not to suffer. Don't let mortals triumph against you. I think we, we ought to feed on those details in our own prayers. Our prayers so easily slip into a sort of anemic repetition of not much more than God bless me because that would be awfully nice. And we've got lots to learn from the way Asa prayed, his decision to take God as his God and really rely on him with amazing results. So that's chapter 14, the decision. But if anything, it gets better still in chapter 15, to the decision we are now add the devotion, which gets fueled by a word from a prophet. Chapter 15, verse 1, the Spirit of God came on Azariah, son of Oded. He went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you're with him. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. 
But as for you, be strong and do not give up, for your work will be rewarded. And then he backs his argument up, the prophet, by reminding them of the chaos, I think, in the time of the judges in Israel's history. But he says, verse 7, As for you, be strong and do not give up, for your work will be rewarded. Now I imagine that different bits of what the prophet said are probably perfect fits for, for some of us here. Um, there's that encouragement. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. That might be exactly what somebody here needs to know, that God isn't hiding from you in your circumstances in your life. Seek him. Ask him to show himself to you. It's a prayer he loves to answer. Well, how about verse 7 for the Christian person who's teetering on the edge of discouragement? Surely that verse is good medicine for us, isn't it? Can you think of somebody to pop this verse in a card to this evening? Be strong and do not give up, for your work will be rewarded. Anyway, it all spurs Asa into action, and he carries on the reforms he'd begun already. Remember I said positive and negative. He's getting rid of false religion, even later on in the chapter, deposing the grandmother, uh, Maka, with her pagan rituals. Um, negative actions there. And encouraging true fellowship by restoring the altar in the temple, positive. And it even galvanizes more people, the other tribes of Israel even, to take God seriously again. So there's this huge celebration in Jerusalem with sacrifices of 700 cattle and 7,000 sheep and goats. And then it says they took an oath to the Lord with loud acclamation, with shouting, trumpets and horns. Verse 15, all Judah rejoiced about the oath they'd taken because they'd sworn it wholeheartedly. They sought God eagerly and exactly what Azariah the prophet had said, he was found by them. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. And a summary verse at the end of the chapter says, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord, devoted But I love, I wonder if you pick this up, that note of joy there. If we lack joy, it's probably because we don't have the devotion, seeking God eagerly, that Asa and his people had. I have never been much of a gymnast, and I can't think of anything that's more unpleasant really than doing the splits. I know some people get pleasure out of these things, but... uh, Sounds awful to me. Somebody once told me, and I've never forgotten it, that the spiritual splits is agony. And I can understand what what they meant by that. You can have, if you've got sort of a foot in both camps, in the world and in Christ, I'm not going to try it on the... uh, I would try it, but I'm on a lectern here. It's difficult. It's difficult to pull it off, okay? But if you have a foot in the world and a foot in Christ and the church and you're doing the splits, that is agony. You've got too much of the world in that situation to enjoy Christ, and too much of Christ really to enjoy the world. It's a miserable situation to be. Whereas if we're devoted to him, we can know real joy and satisfaction. The letter of James has a lovely promise where he says, come near to God, and he'll come near to you. I just want to give you that encouragement to test that promise out in your own life. How about it? The decision and the devotion.
Then an unexpected sequel, The Decline. That's really the theme of chapter 16, isn't it? It all starts with an alliance with King Ben-Hadad in Aram, which I suppose equates to Syria today. This alliance is undertaken so that Asa isn't um, threatened so much by the northern kingdom of Israel. And he could have rationalized the um, policy he was doing, I'm sure, but selling off the temple treasures to fund it, that's meant to be a, a sort of red light flashing to the readers of this account. What makes the whole thing so subtle and attractive is that he can certainly carry this deal off. He's got the silver and gold in the treasure house of the Lord in chapter 16, verse 2. So he's got no trouble putting the deal together to offer Ben-Hadad. Plus, it's obvious looking at it, he had some precedent. 16, verse 3, let there be a treaty between me and you, he said, as there was between my father and your father. He says Abijah had been fine with it. And best of all, it looks like it actually worked. So Syria attacks Israel from the north and immediately Israel forgets all about its southern border. And it means that Asa can cart off the stones and wood from Ramah and build up his northern towns. So the voice of the world tells Asa that these things can be done. This is possible. They've been done before. There's precedent and that they'll work. It's practically a good idea. But the voice of God then confronts him through another prophet, Hanani. Hanani says to him, look, after all you learned from trusting God when that Cushite army invaded, how could you do this? There's a Christian poster verse in verse 9. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. It's a lovely, lovely verse. And... The context of it is easily forgotten. It's really the prophet saying, you know that to be true, Asa. God strengthened you before. So now you're going to get a taste of weakness when you're not fully committed to the Lord. It's a bit of a double-edged promise, less of a Christian post of us when you know the background to it. Well, Asa doesn't like what he hears one little bit. Lock up the prophet and shut down anyone else who supports him. Shut out the voice of God is what he's doing. And it means his reign ends a bit on a downer, doesn't it? Even a good king is still a flawed king. The earthly kingdom just hobbles along, and you get a snapshot of that with that little detail in 16 verse 12. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Though his disease was severe even in his illness, he didn't seek help from the Lord, but only from the doctors. Two years later, he died. So lots of achievements, but in the end, he hobbles off the world stage. A king limited by his own mortality, just I suppose as he was limited by all the different circumstances of his reign. He was good, but he was actually weak. As was every king, even the best we will look at in this series. So then, time to uh, land um, and make some sense of it. How are we to read this as God's word to us? Well, not, I would suggest, as a doctor's prescription. 
with instructions that I suppose we can get wrong easily. Not as commands, but as a word to build our confidence in God's kingdom as against weak human kings. I wonder if every sermon's going to end pretty much the same way and make the same point. Wouldn't be a bad thing if it does. Um, I'm, I think I'm re- restating what I said last week in some ways. Building our confidence in God's kingdom as against weak human kings. And that tension, I suppose, is never really solved until Jesus comes. King Jesus, great David's greatest son, who, that king, did what was right in God's sight all his life. And who so delighted his heavenly father that if we belong to his kingdom will never fall under the judgment and punishment of God, as happened periodically to all the Old Testament kings and their subjects. Jesus has taken that punishment for us at the cross. He's a different king. as He came once in great humility. He will come again, and all the consequences of sin will be put right forever. But for the moment, we're caught in the action between those two comings of our king in all the problems and flaws of everyday human existence, which even the best of us can't put right. And that gives us a parallel with a good but weak king in Israel's day, doesn't it? Humanity, then and now, cannot deliver on the goal of defeating evil. We never can. There was a book and a TV series when I was growing up called The Ascent of Man, And the title tells you what the series argued. It was a sort of nice theory that we're all moving up and up and up and up. And the problem is that the facts fly in the face of it, don't they? In the 20th century, science and education were the great hopes at the start of the century. And then we had the Somme and Auschwitz. Maybe after the two world wars, we could find economic and political answers. Except then we had the Iron Curtain. And even when the Berlin Wall fell... And we get our hopes up with things like the Arab Spring. Still there's a a gruesome civil war in Syria. There's the bottom falling out of the pound today. And hanging out over it all, the prospect of rising global temperatures and whatever future that might mean. We haven't got the solutions in and of ourselves. So are we without hope? Well, Chronicles... And indeed, the whole Bible storyline tells us to fasten our hopes on the one true king. If even a good king like Asa has a sort of decline at the end, it's meant to point us on to Jesus and to the God who keeps his covenant. I like what Augustine once advised people in his day. They were navigating the collapse of the Roman Empire. And he told them to fasten their hopes on the city of God. Trust the past to God's mercy, the present to God's love, and the future to God's providence, he said. So we might despair looking around at our world, or indeed looking at the church. I'm tempted to give up hope looking at the denomination I love, with the official's fingers hovering over the self-destruct button. But I shouldn't give up hope. The Church of England might be in danger, but the Church of Christ is not under threat. Nor indeed is my life. If my life is in Jesus Christ's hands, even if from time to time the circumstances pile up and lead me towards losing hope, even if I feel 
pretty weak and morally dubious at times. I wonder if you ever know that feeling where whichever direction you look, you see problems closing in on every side. Reminds me of, I, I love one of my favorite sort of miniseries is, um, I'm going to forget his name, The Band of Brothers, the story of the 101st Airborne in World War II. There's a situation in that, um, which obviously is reality, it's prehistorical, um, uh, situation in World War II where Dick Winters, who's a U.S. Marine with the 101st Airborne, is left with his division surrounded by the advancing enemy. And everybody else in the Allied force is pulling back and leaving the 101st um, as the only people there to, to block the advance. And uh, Lieutenant Fields says to Dick Winters, looks like you're going to be surrounded. At which point Dick Winters replies, we're paratroopers, Lieutenant. We're supposed to be surrounded. And if you know this, if you don't know the series, there's some great viewing for you to catch up on. It's, it's old now, but it's good. But it's not a bad motto for a Christian caught in the conflict zone between the two comings of Christ. We're supposed to be surrounded in one sense. It's part of his plan that we are left here with our own imperfections, in an imperfect world, which reminds us at every turn that there's only one really decent king, Jesus Christ. We might feel like we're surrounded on all sides until Christ comes back, but that's as it's supposed to be. Even with evil forces in the world, or the church, or our own lives, there is still no panic in heaven. And we may not be perfect, and our situation isn't perfect, but God is on the throne. And just as Asa played a part in God's kingdom, so too can we. We've got to not surrender to fatalism and despair, not while Jesus Christ is on the throne. Well, let's pray together. We pray to that end, Lord, that you would strengthen us and we look to you rather than to our own ingenuity or friends just to help us out. We look to you. We want to rest on you and go from here in your strength. And as we do so, we praise you again for our wonderful King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for him this evening. Amen.